0: summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you because. Your supremacy and your sufficiency is central to our faith. So I pray, Lord, that as we take on this incredible Bible passage, that, Lord, you would teach us who you are so that, Lord, we may in turn live for you and worship you as the exalted Son of glory that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated? Gnosticism, that's a big word. Actually, if you spell it, it starts with a G. Gnosticism. It's a theological term that really wasn't even fully developed when Colossians was written. But the early forms of Gnosticism were already there, and it was one of the threats to the church at Colossae. It's what John wrote about in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's the heresies that he was dealing with, and it is a heresy that found itself in the 1st century church and the 2nd century church, and it's a heresy that elements of it have found themselves into false religions all over the world. And even today, 2,000 years later, Gnosticism is actually a danger in the church today. And so we could spend our entire time together trying to define that word, but I want you just to understand what Gnosticism is in general so that you can understand why Paul saw the need to combat it. We talked about Colossians being a preventative letter, and one of the things that he wanted to keep from happening was the seeds of gnosticism to take root in the church at Colossae and the gnostic philosophers this came from philosophy and when you try to merge theology and philosophy together you get some wicked mixes and gnosticism is one of the most wicked and they believed inherently that matter was evil all matter was evil Well, if you take on that belief, I want you just for a moment before I speak any further, just to imagine what problems that could create. If all matter was inherently evil, then why would that affect anything that you believe? If you didn't, if if I wasn't going to give you the cliff notes in just a moment, what would you imagine would be some things that that would affect? With even three or four seconds to think about that, most of you have already thought about some very significant things, the first of which, if all matter was evil, that means that Jesus couldn't have a body. It means that He couldn't be incarnate. It means that Jesus' physical form, that the incarnation and the celebration of Christmas would be out because they didn't believe that any matter could be anything but evil, so they denied Jesus Christ in the physical form. And you may think, well, how in the world could you do that? Well they either you either have to believe that what people saw when Jesus is alive was just an apparition, or you have to believe that he has a, had a physical body, but therefore He was not God, because God couldn't take on a physical body because matter was evil. If you're starting to deduct that this causes problems in every element of theology, you're right, but you also have to believe something that's very serious, and that is that if the Gnostics are right and all matter is evil, then God couldn't have created the world. Because if God created the world and all matter is evil, including the mountains and the seas and the animals and human beings, originally, then God couldn't have had a hand in that. So the way that they would justify this is that they would teach that Jesus was an emanation of God, or not the one and only Son of God, but one of many. They believe that it took not only Jesus, but many other revelations, secret revelations and secret knowledge to be saved because Jesus wasn't sufficient because of the fact of their Gnostic beliefs. Now, that gives you just a thumbnail sketch, but what it helps you to understand is that what's at stake now is what the Gnostics in this worldview have brought is not only a diminished view of Christ. But an elevated view of other emanations of God. They would consider angels other emanations of God. So angel worship began to take root in some places because of Gnostic philosophy. It was da- a danger in Colossae. And so not only are you dealing with this matter, this, the, the issues of matter being evil, but all of the tendrils that flow out from that. So, when Paul launches out on this beautiful hymn that expresses the the deity of Christ and the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, you're going to see three things today that flow out of this that help us to understand why Christ is all sufficient, why Christ is all supreme, and that when we understand that, it changes everything about our worldview, about our worship. It changes everything. So you see the big idea this morning that the supremacy of the all-sufficient Christ is central to our faith. I want to show you three ways this morning straight from this text that, uh, that shows us that Christ is supreme and that Christ is sufficient. And the first is this, Jesus Christ is supreme in His relationship to the Father. He is supreme in His relationship to the Father. Look with me at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The incarnation means that The Word took on flesh, John 14, and did what? It dwelt among us or it tabernacled among us. That when you see Christ, you see God, that He is the image of God, that He allows the person of God, the Father, to be visible in the image of God, the Son. He is supreme in His relationship to the Father. He reveals God to us because He is fully God. One of the reasons that when we talk about apologetics that it's so important to understand the person of Christ is that Jesus claimed over and over again to be God. He said, I am. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. He came to be one with the father. So either Jesus Christ is God, either he is the image of God and the son of God, either he is that, or you must dismiss him completely. And here's where I think this is essential. Young people, I want you to listen well, because when you're challenged in your faith, the Bible presents Jesus as an all or nothing Christ. He either is supreme and is sufficient. He either is the Son of God. He is the crucified Lamb of God and the risen Son of glory. He is either that or he is nothing. You can't have him as a good teacher because he's not moral if he's a liar. You can't have him as someone who was confused because why would you follow someone who was so confused about their own identity that they thought that they were God when they weren't? That's not a good teacher. That's a lunatic. So either Christ is the Lord of all creation, or we should leave we should dismiss, we should cancel the live stream, we should cancel Facebook Live, we should cancel the broadcast, and you should never come back. It shouldn't matter at all anything else, because if He is not the image of God, if He is not supreme in His relationship to the Father, then everything else we believe you can throw out. But for some of you as we were reading it, there may have been one word that jumped out at you because you thought, wait a minute, wait a minute!" If Paul is trying to prove that that Jesus is eternal and Paul is trying to prove that he is the image of God and that he is God and he was with God at creation, exactly what John said in John 1, then why would he have used this one term, firstborn? Because when I hear the term firstborn, what, what do I immediately think about? I have two children. One was firstborn and one was secondborn. So, when I hear the term that Jesus is the firstborn, you need to understand what Paul was meaning when he wrote that. It does not mean that he was created. Firstborn means that he is preeminent or that he has the supreme authority, that he is the highest in rank. Understand this, that every Jew would have understood this and every first century believer would have understood this word because the firstborn, that was not an indication that he was created. It was an indication that he was the one who deserved all of the authority because he was the one that the blessing of God came on. So when we see this word, it's not talking about God, Jesus is a created being. And if you don't think this is significant, the Jehovah's Witness and many other cults, they use this exact verse to say that He was a created being. When we hear about other religions claiming that Jesus is other, anything other than the eternal God, the divine Logos, the Word incarnate, it's because they've misunderstood what it means that when we say He is firstborn, when He said He is firstborn, it means that He has a authority over it all because he is the one who inherits everything. Why? Because he is the chosen one, the only one, the only begotten of the Father, John three sixteen. right? So that's what it means when we say that he is supreme in his relationship to the Father, but, but he's also supreme in relationship to something else. And, and I want you to look at verses 16 and 17 because Jesus is supreme in his relationship to creation, For by Him all, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by Him. And watch this, you've got two prepositional phrases there. They were created by Him and they were created, don't miss that. He made it and they were created by. For him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We're gonna talk about that word hold together in just a moment, because that's huge. So let's talk about that. Do y'all have just a few minutes? Let's talk about what that means. For him to be supreme in his relationship to creation. He created it. That means he's not just in charge of the spiritual world. See, if you don't get your theology right, you can begin to think like the, the, the early Gnostics, that he's in charge of the spiritual world, but because matter's evil, he couldn't possibly be in charge of the physical world. And some people have misunderstood this even in theology now, because they say that because creation has fallen, which it is, we're going to talk a great deal about that next week, but creation fell, Genesis chapter 3, and not only did sin enter mankind, but all of creation now bears the mark or the curse of the fall, Right? So because all of creation now bears the mark of the fall and it is a universe that is now cursed, and we know that, that somehow that Jesus Christ does not still have dominion or authority over that. But what this verse tells us is not only did he create it by him, that he created it and he created it for his own glory, but he also sustains it. Now let's talk about that specifically. He is the creator of not just the spiritual world, but the, but the physical world as well. But then there's a bunch of terms here, and I just want to point them out so that you pick up on them. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things it says were created by Him. What, what, are, what is all of that? What is it talking about? Thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. This is one you might miss without... It wouldn't take you a lot of study, but just a little, little bit of study on those particular terms those are divisions or classes if you will of angelic beings and so the point being remember what i told you about the colossian church they were being threatened by teaching about different emanations from God. And some of those emanations they believed were angels. So there were people who were elevating angels to higher authority and worshiping angels and praying to angels. So the point that you get when you understand this is all of those powers and authorities, he's talking about every created being, including the angels. You know, when we, you read the Bible and you hear about an archangel. Now, I'm not. A, we don't have time for us to spend all of our time today talking about divisions and classes and ranks of angels. But what we can say is that we know that God creates all things in order. And because everything is order, even the angelic ranks had an order. And so when we talk about that, what we know is that what Paul is driving at the Colossian church about, and he's driving at you at today, is if God created everything, including the angels, why would you ever worship anything but the one who created everything? It's it's an argument from logic that it's not that angels aren't incredible creatures, but they are creatures. And when you separate a creature from the created, it helps us to understand, well, I'm going to the source. I'm going to the creator in my worship and in my praise. And when I ask for help, when I ask for salvation, when I ask for redemption, I'm going to the one who has authority because he is the creator. So let's talk about just for a moment. And man, this took me a long time over the past couple of weeks because I thought about the magnitude of creation. And I tried to think about some ways just to, to try to blow your mind with What it is that our God is when we say in the beginning, Genesis 1 1, that God created the heavens and the earth, when we say that He sustains it by His power. So so just sit back for a moment and relax and think with me for just a few moments about the powerful authority of the Creator God. And by the way, as I'm giving you some of this information, I want you to be confronted by the fact, and students especially, that either you live in the greatest mistake that's ever happened, that we live among the greatest accident that ever took place, or that there is a divine creator who had a plan, and that when you hear this, I don't know how anyone but a fool would not believe that there is an intelligent designer, an engineer behind it all. So just follow a few facts with me. The diameter of our sun is 864,000 miles. It is 100 times the size of our earth. Yet it is so far from us that it takes sunlight which travels 186,000 miles a second so when the, the moment that the light from the sun leaves the sun it takes 8 minutes to reach the earth so when you feel sunlight coming on you it's been traveling at the speed of light and the sunlight you feel when you walk out of here took 8.5 minutes to get to you and that's traveling at 186,000 miles per second that's a pretty incredible accident The nearest star to our sun is 24 trillion miles from earth. 24 trillion miles from earth. The Milky Way, which is just one galaxy, one galaxy has hundreds of billions of stars. And yet astronomers now estimate that there are billions of galaxies. So we live in the Milky Way, try to get your mind around this, which has billions of stars, and the one that's closest to us is 24 trillion miles, and yet there are billions of those stars, and that's in one galaxy, and that galaxy could be one of billions of galaxies. That's a pretty incredible accident. If you were to take the number of stars in the universe and you were to try to count them all, Scientists have estimated there are approximately the same number of stars in the universe that there are grains of sand on every seashore in the world. That's a pretty incredible accident. A change in the earth's rotation around the sun or the tilt of the earth on its axis would immediately destroy life on earth a change in gases by just 1% of the atmosphere would destroy life on earth. If gravity—try to, try to get your mind around this—if gravity were one trillionth of one percent stronger, our universe would collapse in on each other. If one trillionth of one percent weaker, our universe would fly apart never having the chance to come together. That's a pretty incredible accident. Not only that it was created that way, but that it is sustained that way. So what I'm telling you when I challenge college students is when you are confronted by a Romans 1 professor— Now, when I say a Romans 1 professor, that is the person that has been shown the glory of God by the creation of God, and has thought in his heart there is no God. It is a willful decision because of sin to ignore the fact that it is easier to believe that a divine creator created than that nothing created everything, Right? because I've either got to believe that something created everything or that nothing created everything. Nothing creating everything is absolutely absurd. Now, we can get into the debate about who it is that created it all, but whether or not there is design behind what I just shared with you, that shouldn't even be up for debate. Verse 17, he holds it all together. Hebrews 1.3, He upholds all things by the word of His power, which means there are some people that would like to argue that God created the world and then He just took His hands off. You've heard this, a line of philosophy that He just basically set it all into motion and then He said, I'm done. Some deists believe this that there was a God and he may or may not still be around, but that he put everything into motion and then he just let everything go on its own. The power in the universe has to be sustained. It has to be, if God were to take his hands off, all of the laws of physics, even the gravity that we just talked about, would all come apart. So it's not that God just created it and put it into motion. It is the sustaining power of God. So here's what you're confronted with from a philosophical or theological standpoint. Even from a scientific standpoint, it it really comes to a pretty simple question. Did God create man or did man create God? Much of faulty science will tell you that the idea of God was created by man. But when you look at the incredible power of Jesus being supreme in His relationship to the creation, what we know is, is that it is obvious and should be obvious that when we look at creation that He gave us the capacity to understand that He is there, that He is the God who authored all life, and He is supreme in His relationship to creation. And then third, Jesus is supreme in his relationship to the church. Verse 18, and he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn, we've talked about that, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Now, when we say he is the firstborn to be resurrected and to never die again, that's an important statement because Jesus is not the first person to be raised from the grave, right? He rose Lazarus from the dead. The widow at Nain, her son was raised from the dead. We know that that he is not the first person to raise from the dead. The difference is when we say he is the firstborn is that he is the first to rise from the dead and to never die again. And so because he is the firstborn to rise from the dead and never die again, what that tells us is if there is a firstborn that he has gone on ahead, that he is preeminent in that so that now what you and I know is that even though, yes, there is a physical difference. to come, that if you truly are a believer, then when you sang this morning, when we all get to what a day of rejoicing that will be, you should have meant that. And the reason you should have meant that this morning is you recognize that you will never die a spiritual death. He is the firstborn among the dead to rise from the dead so that we will never have to die again. He is the foundation of not only what the church believes, but of who the church is. He says he is the head of the church. That means he controls every part. One of the disturbing trends, and it's not only in Catholic theology with popes and priests, but it's found its way in the evangelical circles as well when we find in the day of the superstar pastor and all the things that go with that, is that it seems that often we have forgotten a very, very basic principle of church polity. When I say polity, that's a word that probably ought to be talked about more, but is not. That's the way a church is governed. That's the the way uh, decisions are made within a church. And so oftentimes you will hear people say, well, this person or that person, they run the church. But when we read this passage, what we understand is that the bride of Christ is Christ's possession. And so sometimes we'll hear people say something about my church. I've used those that phrase before. And most of the time when I talk about it, it's because I'm proud. I'm really proud of First Baptist Summit. Like when I talk about this church, man, I'm I love you guys. I love this church. I'm proud of what we're doing. We're not perfect, but I'm proud to be able to say this is this is my church. But what I mean by that is it's the, the church that, that I go to, the church that I'm a part of. But understand this, that the only person who can really say this is my church is Jesus Christ. You don't own this place. I love you, and I appreciate your opinions, and I hope you love me, and I hope you appreciate my leadership. But this is not my church. This is not any leadership group's church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you know that? Let me give you just a basic principle. (laughs) I heard someone say one time, well, the way to tell who owns it is who signs the checks. Who signs the checks, right? And that's, I understand that. We've got different people. We have to have two people sign every check that goes out of here. But I want you to understand who signs the checks here. The way to understand that is that there is a note that was signed on this church. But it wasn't signed in ink, it was signed in blood. And Jesus Christ signed the note on this church with his blood. And so he owns it. J. Campbell Morgan said this, The church of God, apart from the person of Christ, is a useless structure. If the church is not revealing the person, lifting him to the height where all men can see him, then the church becomes an impertinence and a sham, a blasphemy and a fraud. And the sooner the world is rid of it, the better. Wow. Either Christ is magnified as the owner and supreme ruler of the church, or everything else is just a sham. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not reminded in my mind and in my spirit and by the power of the Holy Spirit that what we're trying to do here is not to advance programs. What we're trying to do here is not build even a mission enterprise. What we're trying to do here is not To build an incredible music ministry. What we're trying to do here is not to have the most engaging sermons. What we're trying to do here is not to develop the greatest media campaign that we can. What we're trying to do here simply, when it gets right down to it, is magnify the name of Christ. And when you get sidetracked on every other issue, then what happens in churches is idolatry is taken over. Because when any program or any person or anything other than the worship of Christ, the magnification of Christ, the uplifting of Christ. When anything else takes first place, then an idol is taken over the church of God. Now, now let's ask a really simple question. Do you agree from this text, true or false? Do you agree from this text that Jesus is supreme in his relationship to the Father? Do you agree from this text, true or false, Jesus is supreme in His relationship to creation. Do you agree in this text that Jesus is supreme in His relationship to the church? If all three of those statements are true from this text, then let's just do some real simple inference. If He's supreme in His relationship to the Father in creation and the church, and He deserves to be supreme in your life. He deserves to be supreme in your family. He deserves to be supreme in your marriage. He deserves to be supreme in your job. He deserves to be supreme in your time. He deserves to be supreme in your conversations. He deserves to be supreme in your hobbies. He deserves to be supreme in your athletics. He deserves to be supreme in your entertainment. He deserves to be supreme in your worship. He deserves to be supreme. I'm sure most people know the name, but I I just want to be sure it's a name you need to know. Everybody in here, when I say the name John Newton, does that ring a bell with anyone? He wrote a little song a while back. Some of you might know. It's called Amazing Grace. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about John Newton. Some of you will have heard some of this before, but I, I think it's worth repeating. John Newton was a rough, dirty sailor foul-mouthed. He had an appetite for rotten living. He hated life, and life hated him. He was the captain of a slave ship. And then someone placed in his hands a copy of Thomas Kempis, the imitation of Christ. He also had the gift of a good mother, a mom who told him about the Savior when he was just a young boy, and he was radically and powerfully saved by the gospel after being saved, he went all over England, and he shared his faith well past what most would consider his retirement age. He kept preaching, and he'd have to have an assistant to walk him to the pulpit, and he would have to lean onto the pulpit for strength, and he was nearly blind, so if he had notes, he would have to lean his face all the way down to be able to see the Bible and to be able to see his notes. His voice got so weak that all he could do was speak in whispers, and it was broken. And he got up one Sunday, and he was delivering his message. And his assistant that was standing by him thought that he had gone senile. Because over and over again, all John Newton said was, in a whisper, Everyone in the pews were leaned up trying to hear the words that were coming out of his mouth. And he said these words, Jesus Christ is precious. And then he said it again, Jesus Christ is precious. And his assistant leaned over and tapped John Newton on the elbow and he whispered in his ear, he said, you've already said that. In fact, you, you've said it twice already. And all of a sudden, that old man who had experienced the amazing grace of God pushed himself up right on the pulpit and he stood as tall as he could stand. And in the loudest voice possible, he exclaimed, I've said it once and I'll say it again. Jesus Christ is precious. And they said that his voice rang out so loud that it was almost as if the walls of the sanctuary would shake. And he said it again, Jesus Christ is precious. And he kept saying it over and over and over again. But there wasn't one person in the sanctuary that thought that he had gone senile or thought that it was because of dementia. They were convinced that the man who'd experienced the amazing grace of God, who once was lost but now was found, was blind, but now he could see, the one who was a wretch but knew what it was to experience the amazing grace of God in what would prove to be some of his last breaths in one of his last sermons. He wanted everyone to know the preeminence of Christ, the authority of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, all were found in a statement that Jesus Christ is precious. The question is, in every area of your life that I have mentioned, do you find Him precious? We hear so much today about what we need in our culture, what we need in our society, what we need in education, what we need in entertainment, what we need in technology. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. If our greatest need had been anything else, that's what God would have sent. But guess what He sent? God sent a Savior, and the reason for that is your greatest need is forgiveness. It is is your greatest need. If you've experienced that forgiveness, then you have experienced what John Newton called amazing grace. And it ought to be that when you think about who Jesus is, if you had one way to describe him, maybe like that old slave trader, you would simply look up and you would say, if I had to tell you one thing about my Jesus, I would tell you that Jesus Christ is precious. He is the all-sufficient, all-supreme, creator, sustainer, and savior of the world, and he deserves your life, and he deserves your all.